following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Okay, so this morning we are back in the book of James. All right, so James chapter 5. Now, very, very special privilege we've got this morning. As we finish this series in James, reading this passage from James this morning, we have none other than James. James himself is going to read this passage. Not the brother of Jesus, but very close. James Everett is going to come and read this passage for us. So come on up, James, and uh, let's get you set up. Thanks for that reading of James, James. Good stuff. All right. Uh, most of you will know the actor Chris Pratt. Picture on screen here. This guy's uh, been in a number of things, uh, Jurassic World, Parks and Recreation, a number of things. He, uh, earlier in the year, he got himself into a bit of controversy. Uh, the, another guy, Kevin Smith, had a heart attack and survived. And on the back of that, Chris Pratt tweeted about Kevin Smith. And here's what he tweeted. I'm praying my blank off for you because I believe in the healing power of prayer. Can you please pray with me, people? And in response to that, he got a whole lot of tweets back, absolutely slamming him. And I'll read you some of them. Uh, one person said, It takes away from what the doctors and science achieve and gives credit to an imaginary being. Why not just say, Hope you have a speedy recovery. Best wishes. Invoking God for what reason then? Someone else said, Science and a team of hardworking, caring physicians and nurses saved Kevin Smith. The great sky fairy doesn't exist. Someone else said, That's cool and everything, but doctors and nurses save lives, not prayer. And then recently, I don't know whether you saw it, at the MTV Music Awards, Chris Pratt got a, an award, a generation award, and he got up and he gave the speech, which were like his nine rules for living. And some of them were just weird, but some of them were really good. And one of them was on prayer. And he said this, pray, it's easy, and it's so good for your soul. So it was kind of strange, like in such a secular context as the MTV Music Awards, that you're seeing someone stand up and champion the virtues of prayer. And I think Chris Pratt's a Christian, or some kind of Christian anyway. And, so, and he's big on, big on the power of prayer. And it just kind of highlights, I think, the strange place that prayer has in our world today. Like, in some ways, it gets so rubbished, doesn't it? It gets so slammed because it's seen to be at odds with modern science, modern medicine, modern technology. It seems to undermine the good work that doctors, nurses, physicians do. Those are the people that really fix things. Those are the people that make things happen. We don't need prayer. Prayer seems like this relic from the dark ages compared to what modernity can now accomplish. Uh, and sometimes people get angry when you talk about prayer. You know, you, you, you hear after something terrible has happened, you hear people say, our thoughts and prayers are with the victims. And that makes people angry because sometimes they feel like it's an excuse not to do anything. And they feel like it's kind of just inaction. Don't, don't just give me your words. Don't just give me your prayers. Do something about it. And so prayer gets a bad rap there as well. And yet sometimes you have people like Chris Pratt that stand up and champion prayer in the strangest of, of settings. And uh, it, it just pops up all over the place. You have a song like Where is the Love by the Black Eyed Peas, one of the most popular songs in the last couple of decades. And a large part of it is a prayer. Father, Father, help us. Send us guidance from above. And it's completely accepted as a secular song 
by a secular band playing on secular radio, and yet a big part of it's a prayer. So in one way, prayer is rubbished, and yet in another way, it's kind of cheered on. And it, it, prayer has this kind of strange place. It struggles to find a place, I think, in our, in our secular age. Uh, and in our lives too, right? I mean, sometimes we just struggle to find the place that prayer is supposed to have for us personally, even those of us who believe in it, even those of us who are Christians, and we believe in prayer, right? Or we should. We believe in the power of prayer. But we still struggle with it, don't we? We still struggle to find the place for prayer, and, and we struggle with, with how to pray and when to pray and, and where to pray and who to pray for and, and sometimes why to pray because it doesn't seem like prayers get answered sometimes, and so we struggle with motivation and we don't feel connected to God sometimes, and so we don't feel like praying. And I mean, prayer is supposed to be one of the most fundamental practices in the Christian life, and yet, arguably, it's one of the most neglected. We struggle with prayer. We struggle to find a place for it even in our own lives, let alone in the broader world. So we need to hear the wisdom of James when he talks to us about prayer. And it's significant, I think, that James, he comes to end his letter here. You know, he's talked about all these things, so many topics we've covered, hey, over the last several months. And yet here in the final few verses, final couple of paragraphs, the last major subject James deals with, he turns to the topic of prayer. And I think his intention here is not to beat us up. It's not to tell us all these, you know, should to and ought to and you must and do better and hang a big stick over us. It's to simply give us a bigger vision of what prayer is. It's simply to help us see the power and the importance and the, the centrality and the vitality of prayer in the Christian life so that we'd get a bigger vision of what happens when God's people pray and we would be motivated to become a praying people. That's where James is coming from. So I want to just walk through this passage with you this morning, just step through most of it and just see what James says here about how we can become praying people, how we can become a praying church. So follow along with me if you've got your Bible open. Verse 13, James starts by saying, Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. So what's James doing? He's taking two different scenarios right, at, at opposite ends of the spectrum. He's saying, if you're in trouble, i.e. things are going badly, what should you do? Pray. And on the other hand, if you're happy, if things are going well, what should you do? Sing songs of praise, which is just another way of saying pray. That's what we do when we sing songs of praise, isn't it? We're praying, right? We're just praying through music, but it's still prayer. This is what we're doing. So what James is saying is whatever situation you're in, whether things are going badly, whether things are going really well, the appropriate response to that is pray. It should be a natural response, an impulsive response to whatever is happening in our lives at the time. Pray, pray whatever's happening. But the situation that James zeroes in on in this passage, the situation he spends most time on in the next few verses, and so we're going to spend the most time on it, is situations where someone is sick. And what does prayer look like in situations where someone is sick? That's a more thorny issue. It's a more controversial issue. So we're going to spend a bit of time unpacking that. And... Um, I'm on leave this coming week, so once again, all complaints can go straight to Michael. So I've timed this well, haven't I? So James says in verse 14, Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. So why does James say, if you're sick, call the elders? I mean, why doesn't he just say, if you're sick, pray? Just like if you're in trouble or if you're happy, pray. Pray, pray, pray for healing. But he specifically says, if you're sick, in that case, call the elders. I think what James is doing here is recognizing that as Christians, we're placed into a community. 
We're placed into a family called the church. We're not supposed to exist as solitary islands. We're not supposed to battle through all this stuff by ourselves. We're placed into a community here. And within this community, God's appointed leaders. He's appointed elders. Elders are just shepherds over the church community, shepherds over the flock. That's the metaphor that the, the Bible uses. And part of the role of elders in the life of a local church like this one is to pray for the sick. That's part of their biblical mandate. Elders do a bunch of things. They're overseers. They have a governance role. But part of their role, part of their designated biblical purpose is to pray for the sick. And that doesn't mean that elders have any special powers. doesn't mean they have superpowers and that their prayers are better or more holy and righteous than anyone else's prayers. It just means this is part of their role. And one of the ways that God's chosen to work in the church is through the elders, through their leadership, through their discernment, and through their praying. And so this is one of the things we take this seriously. At Shore. I mean, we actually do this, right? This is not just ancient wisdom for ancient times. We actually put this into practice at Shore. We have elders. They're here today. In fact, you'll have an opportunity later on to pray with them if you want to. But one of the things that we do at Shore is our elders are available to pray with people who are sick. And if you're sick, you can call the elders and we'll make ourselves available to come around and pray with you like we really take this seriously. We really take this literally. We do this. Now, I think, you know, the qualification to make is James is talking about people. When he says, let them call the elders of the church, I think the implication is we're talking about slightly more serious kinds of illnesses here. Okay? So if you wake up with a runny nose, you know, maybe don't straight away call the elders, summon them to your bedside, have a healing meeting and a prayer vigil right there. Maybe take some Panadol and see how it goes first, right? It's not either or here, okay? So, I mean, much as Richard would love to hear from you at 2 a.m. when you've got a bit of a headache, we are talking about slightly more serious things, okay? We love you all. We do. We love you. But we're not going to pray for your snotty nose, okay? So, having said that, where there are more serious things going on, slightly more se- there's no there's no objective line here, but I'm just saying where there's slightly more serious sicknesses and illnesses going on, this is one of the things that we can do, and this is one of the things that we do do, and this is one of the things your elders are doing, is praying for the sick and uh, doing that face-to-face, being with them and praying for them. Now, the next phrase here is a little bit more uh, interesting. It says, call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil. In the name of the Lord. So this sounds a bit weird, doesn't it? It's like, what's going to happen now? Are the elders going to come around with the canola? Are they going to come around with the extra virgin oil and douse me with? Do I need to get some towels? What's the story? You know? Well, this is, the oil is, is very interesting. The symbolism of the oil. Many people believe that the oil in ancient times had kind of a medicinal purpose. It was often used for anointing those who were sick. And it was believed to have kind of healing properties that would help the person get well. But even more than that, if you look at the way that oil's used in the Old Testament, very often it's a symbol of God's presence. It's, the, it's a symbol of God's favor upon a person's life. So look at the people that got anointed with oil in the Old Testament. Priests got anointed with oil. Kings got anointed with oil. King David was anointed. The prophet Samuel came and anointed him with oil. Uh, think of Psalm 23. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. What's, what's the symbolism? It's that God's favor rests upon my life. 
It's a symbol of blessing. It's a symbol of God's presence. It's a symbol of God's divine favor resting upon us. When Jesus sent the disciples out to proclaim the gospel and heal the sick, they went out and the text says they anointed them with oil and healed the sick in Jesus' name. So to anoint someone with oil is simply to symbolize that God's healing presence is with us. And sometimes we do this. Uh, I've done this. I remember going around to the home of a, an elderly gentleman in the church whose, whose health was deteriorating, and he wanted to be anointed with oil. So we got a little, what do you call it, bottle, flask of oil, and with just a little dab of oil, and I made the sign of the cross on his forehead with the oil, and we prayed for him. There's no special properties in the oil. It's not a magic potion. It's not something that's going to enhance the healing. It's just a symbolic act which says Christ is here. Jesus is here. He's here in power. He's here with grace. He's here with forgiveness. He's here with mercy. His healing power is with us. That's what the oil represents. Now, we don't do this all the time. It's not that every time we pray for healing, we have oil with us, but sometimes we do. And if that's something that you, that you want to have happen, we can do that. It's, it's sort of an occasional thing more than a regular thing, but that's what the oil means. And it can be a special and powerful symbol that God is here, God is present, and He's the one. If there's healing to be done, it's God who will do it because He's here and He's present with us. So let's press on. Next verse. James says, verse 15, And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they've sinned, they will be forgiven. Now, this verse is sometimes taken as an unconditional promise that if you just pray hard enough and if you just have enough faith, the prayer of faith, James says, will make the sick person well. And it sounds so emphatic, doesn't it? It just sounds so absolute that if you just pray in faith, this is what's going to happen. Is this, is this an unconditional promise of healing? That's the question. Is James offering an unconditional guarantee that if you just have enough faith, the person's going to be healed? Because on face value, that's how it could be read. And you probably know of people who have got great big healing ministries and set themselves up as faith healers or you know, just have a, a real healing focus to what they're doing. And very often there's a huge emphasis with these people on faith. You've got to pray in faith. If you want to be healed, you've got to pray with faith. And the idea is you've got to pray with this kind of unshakable faith. You've got to summon this impenetrable, impermeable, unassailable faith. And if you have that kind of faith, God's going to heal. Unquestioningly, as long as you've got enough faith, God's going to heal. Now, is that what James is saying? I mean, I know of people, I, I heard a story recently where the testimony of a guy who was talking about living with chronic pain and he went forward in a particular gathering and had some people pray for him for healing, praying in faith, praying the prayer of James 5. And the next morning he woke up and he was absolutely pain-free. Chronic pain was gone. And I don't doubt for a minute that God healed that man. And he gave glory to God for it. He shared his testimony and witnessed to the power of a healing God. And you might have heard stories similar to that. But you might also have heard the other kinds of stories. And you might know of people that have prayed and prayed and prayed for a loved one, someone maybe with a terminal illness. And they've prayed and they've believed that 
God's going to heal that person. They've prayed the prayer of James 5, and they've prayed in faith. They've prayed with all the faith they can possibly muster that God is going to come through, and they've believed it, and they've believed it, and they've believed it. But the person has still died. And the difficulty then is that you start asking questions. You know, did I not have enough faith? Was my faith not like if James says the prayer of faith and maybe there's a problem with my faith? Maybe in, in the last moments my faith wavered. Did I just not have enough? Was I not spiritually strong enough? And was that the problem? And of course, what's happening then is you've got a person who, who already has grief and now what you're adding in over the top is what? Guilt, right? Now they feel horribly guilty because they feel like they didn't have enough faith and the burden they're carrying is now twice as heavy. Or they start asking questions about God. How come God didn't heal? I had faith, I prayed. How come God hasn't come through? Is God not faithful to his promises? Is God not a promise-keeping God? He said he'll heal, but what happened? And this can shipwreck people's faith. They get mad at God because they feel like he hasn't kept his end of the bargain. And people have walked away from God because they've claimed a healing that hasn't happened. And sometimes even when people are journeying with someone who's terminal, when they have such a one-track view that that person is definitely going to be healed and they leave no room for any other possibilities, it keeps that person who's caring for their loved one in a state of denial about what's really going on. And it keeps them from coming to terms with the reality of the situation. And I'm not saying for a minute that we shouldn't pray in faith because James gives us every reason and every right to pray. And we know God is a healing God. But James 5 does not give us an unconditional guarantee. It just doesn't. I mean, in a lot of ways, I wish it did, but it doesn't. You've got to put this passage next to the broader witness of Scripture around the issue of healing. You've got to look at passages like 2 Corinthians 12, where Paul has his thorn in the flesh, whatever that is. We don't know. Could have been a physical ailment of some kind. And what does Paul do? He prays three times this would be taken away. And Jesus says to him, no. Basically, I mean, Jesus, what Jesus says is, my grace is sufficient for you, Paul, because my power is going to be made perfect in weakness. That's tough. That would have been tough for Paul to hear. I bet he, he wished for the healing. He wanted the healing. But, but the gift that God gave Paul was not the gift of physical healing. It was the gift of knowing the sufficiency of God's grace, which maybe is the greater gift. It's not the gift we want, is it? We want the healing. But God says, my power is perfected, not in health and strength and triumph. My power is perfected in weakness and hardship, in trial and sickness and in suffering. And sometimes God will allow us to go through those things because he wants us to know the sufficiency of his grace, even in the darkness, even in the, even in the grief, even in the loss. It's hard to hear. I know that's hard to swallow. Sometimes God heals, and I don't know why, sometimes he heals one person and he doesn't heal another person. But I know he gives us every invitation to pray for healing. Nothing that I've said should ever hold us back from being people who pray for healing, right? We can, and we should, and God can heal. And he does. He does. You know, sometimes I think when we pray for healing, we're a bit too timid. We kind of go to the other extreme sometimes, don't we? And we hold back so much because we're, kind of, we're almost trying to protect God's reputation. And we qualify our prayers so heavily. 
You know, God, I pray you'd heal, but if you don't want to, that's okay. And if you choose not to, that's all right. And I accept your will, and you probably don't want to anyway, and it's probably not going to happen, so just don't worry about it at all. By the time we're finished, we've talked ourselves out of it. You know, look, God can deal with all the qualifications. He's your heavenly Father. Let Him deal with all that stuff. You just pray. You pray for healing for people that you know and you love. You pray. You pray unconditionally for that healing. You pray for full and complete healing and restoration. There's nothing wrong with that. And you have the confidence and the faith to know that God is able to bring about that healing. Will he heal that person? We don't know. Because your faith rests on the sovereignty of God, doesn't it? Your faith is not this thing that you summon up to try and be a spiritual bravado. Your faith is ultimately a faith in the sovereignty of God as your loving Heavenly Father. And it's his prerogative whether he grants the healing or whether he withholds the healing. Sometimes he'll grant, sometimes he'll withhold. We don't know why. His ways are higher than our ways. There's no answer I can give you as to why God will heal someone in one instance and why he will not heal someone in another instance. But he calls us to pray. Faith is incredibly important. But equally, the sovereignty of God is incredibly important. Our faith needs to be in the sovereignty of God. It needs to be in the providence of God. Your faith's not a bargaining chip. It's not something that gives you leverage with God. It's not something that can, that can force the hand of God. We humbly pray in faith and we entrust ourselves to God. And if he doesn't grant the healing, that takes faith too, doesn't it? Faith to believe that he's still good. Faith to believe that he's still in control. Faith to believe that he's still faithful and still on the throne, even if the healing doesn't come. A few weeks ago, uh, there was a group of us from the church who went to a conference down in Tauranga. And there was an evening at the conference where there's an open invitation for people to come forward and receive prayer. And they had some of the leaders of this conference stationed around the place and they were available to pray with people. And I felt this strong prompting to go forward and be prayed for, go forward and receive prayer. And so I did. And I went up and uh, prayed with this, this couple at the front. And, uh, I, and I asked them for prayer for physical healing. Uh, I had back surgery last year, and there's been some, some muscle issues that have been an ongoing niggle for me since then, and it's just been a real, a real pain. And so I just simply asked them. I didn't go into a lot of detail, but just asked them, you know, could you pray for healing for me? And they, they prayed for me. They laid hands on me and, and prayed for me. It was reasonably short and simple, and they prayed genuinely and, and, and simply for me. And I said thank you and, and went on. And I can honestly say, I look back over those last three weeks, and I can honestly say that my health issues have definitely improved. Now, can I say that I was unconditionally and immediately healed? No. I sort of feel like the guy that Jesus healed who was blind, and Jesus spat on his eyes, and then he could kind of see. You know, you remember that guy? He's like, can you do it again, Jesus? I sort of feel like that, but I, I feel like my, my health issues have definitely improved. But as I look back on that night, I see something even more significant than that. I'd been struggling because of these health issues. I'd been struggling with anxiety, and it just given, it made, me, made me tense, and it made me anxious. And I'd had some, some pretty sleepless nights because of that. And as, the, as these people prayed for me, I just had this, this overwhelming sense of peace come into my heart, the peace of God's Spirit. And that anxiety that I was feeling around my condition has gone. And I think maybe that's the healing that God brought about. Maybe that's the greater healing that God was doing. See, we pray for one thing, and sometimes God's doing another thing, even beyond what we're praying for. We can be praying in this direction, and God can be moving in that direction. But He's always doing something. Sometimes the healing comes in different ways, right? The healing sometimes is an internal healing, not an external healing. 
Sometimes the healing's not now, it's later. Sometimes it's even a healing that'll take place in the life to come. It may not be in this life. God doesn't always answer our prayers the way that we want them answered, but he always does something. And I think that's what James says in this verse where he really brings it all together, this powerful statement in verse 16 at the end where he says, the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. And the righteous person, by the way, it's not the perfect person. In case you think this, this isn't me, it doesn't apply to me, it's not the perfect person. It's just the person who loves Jesus. It's the person who's in relationship with Jesus and who is pursuing Jesus. When that person prays, when the righteous person prays, their prayer is powerful and effective. The word effective is the word, the Greek word energeo, and it's the same word we get energy from. So when we pray, God releases his divine energy into the situation that we're praying for. And when you think energy, by the way, don't think like the force. It's not some kind of impersonal force like Star Wars. This is the energy of the Holy Spirit we're talking about, a personal energy. This is the Spirit. So our prayers go up and the Holy Spirit comes down, but sometimes not in the ways that we've prayed for. We pray for what we think we need and what we think we want, and our prayers go up and they reach the ears of the Lord Almighty, and God opens the doors of heaven and He releases His power but he will release his power according to his will, not ours. And he will accomplish his will and his purposes, not ours. And sometimes that'll be things that we see and sometimes it'll be things we don't see. You may be praying for something and the answer comes in a completely different way. Sometimes you'll never see the results of the prayers that you pray. People in the Bible will pray for things and the results or the answers come generations later. You may never know, never be aware of the way that God's working in response to your prayer, but you can know this on the basis of James 5.16. Whenever you pray, something happens. I think we can stand on solid ground on God's word and say that. Whenever you pray, something happens. It's never nothing. It may not be seen, it may not be now, it may not be external, it may not be exactly what you've asked for, but when God's people pray, something always happens. God releases His divine, the energy of His Spirit, into the situation, and He will effect something. He will bring something about according to His will and His purposes and His plan, not ours. So that should give us confidence, shouldn't it, to pray. Should give us confidence to be a praying people that we know when we pray, something's happening, something's changing, something's moving somewhere, somehow. We just may not see it. And then James finishes with the story of Elijah. And I'll finish with this because it's such a great story and so relevant, I think, for, for right now. You know, a lot, James says Elijah was a man just like us. And we think Elijah is a great prophet in the Old Testament, and he was a great prophet. But he was, James says, a human being, just as we are. He was a man just like us. And Elijah's got a fascinating story. You don't need to turn to the, the particular chapters in the Old Testament. Let me just tell you the story. Elijah lived in the Old Testament during a time that was really Israel's greatest spiritual depression. They just reached a total low in their relationship with God. They'd wandered from God. They'd turned their back on God. They'd just drifted into apostasy, and they were bowing the knee before other gods, especially the god Baal the God of the Canaanites. And the significant thing about Baal, the God Baal, is that he was the God of rain. Baal was the storm God. He was the God that brought the rain, it was believed, on the earth, and therefore he was responsible for the fertility of the land, the crops being produced, and so on. He was the rain God, the storm God. And so Elijah turns up in the Old Testament, in 1 Kings 17, and you know the, he stands before King Ahab, 
who was one of the most wicked, despised kings in Israel's history. And he stands before Ahab. And you know the first words out of Elijah's mouth to King Ahab? There's going to be a drought for the next three years. Now, if you know anything about Baal, you know there's a lot more going on than Elijah just saying there's going to be a drought. Baal's the rain god. What's Elijah saying? The Baal's time's over. Baal's got no more power. There's a new sheriff in town. Yahweh, the God of Israel, the God of the Bible, he is in control. He is the one true God, and Baal has no authority. And to show it, there's going to be a drought. And so Elijah prays that there would be no rain, and there was no rain in the land for three and a half years. And I say that this is relevant, just as a side note, by the way, because this prayer that Elijah prays, that God would not send the rains, isn't that exactly the prayer we should be praying right now for Thailand? Like literally. Isn't that, isn't, it's eerily relevant, I think. That's the prayer that Christians around the world should be praying right now for Thailand, that God would stop the rains, that God would hold off on the monsoon rains with enough time to get these boys out. So Elijah prays that there would be no rain, and there was no rain on the land for three and a half years. And during that time, Elijah has the great contest with the prophets of Baal, and they set up those altars with a bull there and the God who consumes the sacrifice, he's the true God. And so the prophets of Baal pray, nothing happens. Elijah prays, God comes down and consumes the sacrifice. And then straight after that incident, Elijah goes back up to King Ahab. And here's the last words that Elijah says to King Ahab. He said, King Ahab, you better eat and drink because I hear the sound of a heavy rain. It's just full of irony. You know, Elijah's saying, hey, King Ahab, the rain's coming. But it's not Baal who's bringing the rain. It's Yahweh. It's the one true God. But again, that reference to rain, the rain's coming, but God is in control. He knows what he's doing. So Elijah prays, and God again bring rain upon the earth. And James's point is simply that, hey, Elijah, he did extraordinary things, but it wasn't him doing extraordinary things. It was God. And God's the same yesterday, today, forever. The God that we're praying to today is the same God of Elijah, isn't he? He hasn't changed. It's the same God who brought the rain and stopped the rain. And Elijah was a man just like us. He didn't have superpowers. He wasn't superhuman. He had two eyes, nose, ears, spleen, kneecaps. He was a guy just like us. But he prayed. And it stopped raining. And who knows what might happen if God's people pray today. Maybe we find ourselves living back in the days of Elijah. And God does amazing things. And you know, even if God doesn't do extraordinary things by our definition of extraordinary, we still know that every time we pray, something happens. Every single time. That should make us praying people, shouldn't it? Father God, we thank you for the gift of prayer a gift that you never had to give us. And you could have just remained distant and there could have been no means of us really communicating with you, but you have given us this unspeakable privilege that we can at any moment come into the Holy of Holies, that we can do what almost nobody through the Old Testament could ever do, come into the sacred space, come into the, the heavenly throne room. And we thank you. Your word says we can come with boldness. We can come with confidence to find mercy, to
to find grace to help us in our time of need. We thank you, God, that we don't need to come to you um, timidly. We don't need to come to you nervously. Even if it's been a long time since we've talked to you, we thank you that we can just come back, reconnect with you, and receive your grace afresh into our lives. So I want to pray, Father, in this time that you would just pour out your Spirit among us, that you'd move by your Holy Spirit in our lives and in our church, that you'd open our hearts, God, where there's walls in our hearts, where there's things we're holding on to, where there's things you want to break down. Father, we pray you'd come and do that now by your Spirit. We pray you'd come and bring freedom. We pray you'd come and pour out your grace, God, into our lives, into our hearts. We pray you'd stir our hearts to respond to you in prayer, Adoration, thanksgiving, lament, confession, praise, whatever it needs to be. However you're motivating us to respond, we want to do that now willingly as your people. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources or to donate to our teaching resource ministry or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shore.org.nz Alternatively, you can email office at shore.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.